HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we will be talking to Jennifer Pomerantz, a professor at New York University and the interim chair of the Department of Public Health Policy and Management at NYU's College of Global Public Health. Jennifer is joining us to discuss the political and legal barriers to regulating marketing efforts and the policy and program initiatives being put into place to fight these barriers. This will be the second episode of a two-part series about food marketing as we, as a follow-up to the conference hosted by the Resnick Center for Food Law and Policy back in October. As a reminder, our goal with this series is to provide a platform to revisit these discussions for those who couldn't make it to the conference in person. And we are so very thrilled that it has brought Jennifer, a panelist at the conference, to our show today. Later on, um, we will also be joined by Doug Rausch, founder and president of The Daily Table, a nonprofit food retail store based in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And he will be telling us a little bit more about the work they're doing. But before we dig into today's, to today's topic, I want to briefly run through some of the biggest food policy stories in the past week. Um, and sadly, ever so sadly, my associate producer, Taylor Lanzette, is not in the studio to join me to talk through some of these today. So you're stuck with me. Okay, so. <laughs> yes, David coming in strong with the sound effects. I got you. <laughs> you do. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so first up, the, uh, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that currently one third of the world's population is affected by malnutrition, costing the global economy an estimated $3.5 trillion a year in healthcare and lost productivity. 
by 2035, that number is expected to rise to half the world's population. Researchers who worked on this study are pushing governments and industry to find common ground in incentivizing healthy and nutritious food, even expanding ag research beyond the common rice and wheat. Next up, uh, earlier this week, it hit the press that Monsanto uh, launched a climate-neutral initiative. Weird, I know, this, this may sound crazy, but um, they will be partnering with 10 ag organizations and universities um, and formed the Climate Neutral Collaborative, which is tasked with developing a system for measuring greenhouse gas emissions from the ag industry and reporting on best practices to mitigate climate change. The group is also positioned to help Monsanto um, become carbon neutral by 2021. Um, we have been talking quite a bit about Monsanto on the show, and I have to say this was another piece of good news coming out um, from this company. So I'm looking forward to kind of following their progress and want to congratulate them on this exciting initiative. Okay, Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. You remember that bill which we've been talking about for over a year now that's been delayed for over a year now? Well, it's officially dead, according to Senate Ag Chairman Pat Roberts. The Senate and House committees were very divided in what they wanted to see in this bill, and neither chamber managed to even vote on it during this congressional session, which is in its final days. So uh, this nutritional, the nutritional programs will continue in operation, um, although the 2010 law is set to expire in the fall. So we will be uh, also reporting on whether or not there is any movement on this in the new session, um, which probably will not be expected for some time. Okay, and just now, the Washington Report, uh, Washington Post reported that President-elect Trump announced his pick for the EPA, which will be Scott Pruitt, who has written that the debate on climate change is, quote, far from settled. Because this administration or future administration seems to be completely allergic to this little thing I like to call science. Um, yes, so that is probably um, a foreshadowing of things to come. <laughs> Okay, and bonus, by the way, bonus, guys, um, Pruitt is uh, part of a coalition of state attorneys general suing the EPA that he's going to head up over the administration's clean power plan. Um, so that happened. That happened today. Okay, and lastly, because we really want to wrap up on a kind of a good news, um, in the final hours of, of this year, um, a year which I feel like a lot of us are pretty desperate um, to come to an end, we received some good news. So the um, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe won a major victory in its battle to block an oil pipeline being built its, near its reservation. Part of this objection was that the pipeline's path was so close to the, the tribe's source of water, there were a lot of concerns that any any spill could poison their water supplies for both them and for others downstream. Um, you know, we we don't know what what Trump will do once he's in office, but it's pretty inspiring to see this pop pipeline stopped as of now. Okay, um, on that note, we're going to leave it there for the news today. As always, if you have thoughts on the issues we discussed or ideas for topics that you want to hear covered moving forward, email us at eatingmatters at heritageradionetwork.org or tweet to us at eatmattershrn. 
Okay, now for our feature story today about the legislative and regulatory issues entailed in curbing food marketing efforts. Um, Joining us to talk through these issues is Jennifer Pomerantz. Jennifer is an assistant professor and the interim interim chair of the Department of Public Health Policy and Management at NYU's College of Global Public Health. She has an expertise on food law and policy. Um, She also earned her JD from Cornell Law School, and she's her master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That is, I have to say, that's quite the title you have. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, but, but. Uh, I'm, I'm already depressed from the news that we just yeah, heard. Sorry. So. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, reality. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of a bummer right now. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's start from the very beginning, like we do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Constitution. So we know that the First Amendment forg- forbids governments from making a law that abridges the freedom of speech. What does this mean exactly, um, and how does it relate to food marketing specifically? Sure. So the Constitution, um, the First Amendment, was passed originally thinking that they were protecting people's right to have political speech and engage in debate. But in the 1970s, the Supreme Court interpreted the First Amendment to apply to commercial speech, which is what everyone um, calls advertising, marketing, and those that type of promotional speech. And so the Supreme Court has said that it is difficult to restrict commercial speech, um, but it's easier to require factual disclosures. So that's why you see food labels and things like that that are factual. But restricting commercial speech is much more difficult. When we talk about you know the, the types of places that commercial speech shows up, um, what what are some of these places beyond the TV ads um, where where the protection of this commercial speech applies? I think you'll you see it everywhere. So everything from uh, the turnstiles and the subway ads, the um, the billboards. So TV, of course, but on the Internet, there are little pop-up ads. There are ads on web pages you go to. Mm-hmm. You get in your news feed, um, food labels. So everywhere you see the companies telling you to eat their products or what their products are, That's which I think is everything, everywhere with food. <laughs> it's it's it, ubiquitous, I think. Yes. It's it's uh, safe to say. Um, are there... Is there a government body? I'm assuming there's a government body or agency that is responsible for regulating what these companies can and can't say. Yeah, so the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, regulates uh, marketing practices, and they look to try to limit false and unfair and deceptive marketing. Mm-hmm. And so that's their their primary goal. But I should note that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, regulates the food labels. And the USDA regulates some food labels, but for the most part, the issues that we're talking about are the FDA. Um, the FTC, you mean? Well, the FDA for food labels oh, for food and then labor. the FTC for everything else. The for everything else. Internet, phone, and TV, um, et cetera. What does false and deceptive mean? So false is when it's factually inaccurate. So the, the normal word of thinking of false. Deceptive is when it, there is a... Um, where when it's giving a um, a perception that something is different than 
It is. And I think one of the great cases that would better describe it than giving you a legal definition Mm -hmm. was a a case where Gerber had these fruit snacks, and on the front of package, they had pictures of fruit that didn't actually exist in the product (laughs) itself. So that was deceptive advertising, because consumers aren't expected to go read the ingredient list to prove that the fruit on the front of the package is not actually in the food. Um, so, okay, so I have a question. Um, wait, when did that happen? When did that, that Gerber case, mm. is it recent? Like maybe five years, five, six okay. years ago. Okay. And any, any other kind of recent examples of when um, the government maybe had to step in and, and say, you can't, you can't say this, you can't make this claim? Oh, there's a lot of great examples. I think one that people might remember is when Kellogg's had the immunity claim on its cereal, and the FTC said that this is an unfair and deceptive practice. It wasn't based on real science, and it happened to come out during the time when swine flu was a, there was a fear about swine flu. So they were concerned that parents were going to start buying Kellogg's cereal to protect their children. Um, so that that was a more recent example. A what? Why would they say that it, 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 gives you immunity <laughs> like where did they come where did that come from i don't know i, I think that their marketing department their legal department and the science department didn't probably communicate well <laughs> yeah um okay so i want to talk a little bit about kind so um in 2015 a lot of people will remember the fd the fda um sent the company makers of the uh fruit the very popular fruit and nut bars, um, a letter asking the company to remove the word healthy from some of its labels. Um, is this, is this an example of, of government trying to regulate commercial speech and did the FDA have legal authority to do this? Um, yeah, so the, the FDA has specific guidelines for different types of terms, and so the, uh, they, the kind bar must not have, I actually re- don't recall specifics, specifics of it, but they must not have been abiding by those, um, those guidelines. So there's a lot of different claims that companies use. Um, the immunity claim is called a structure function claim. Then the other types are usually nutrient content claims, and they make these. They're all over food packaging, and the there. But there are there are rules for how you're allowed to use them. Like you see, good source of vitamin D and things like high in fiber. But there are rules on how to use those terms, and so they must not have uh, vi- kept to those rules. So what if what if the kind was advertising on air and they said you know, healthy, delicious products, would that, would that Oh, be- yeah. No, the, the, the agencies have the authority to, to deal with all of the types of marketing. It's just a, for on the specific labels, it's the FDA. But, but could a company, like, could Kind say, make a health, that, the claim that they were healthy or because it's not on the package and therefore regulated by the FDA, they can, they can say those things? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they could have a commercial saying that okay. um, it, huh. because I don't think the FTC has a similar um, regulation. Jurisdiction? Like yeah. Um, so they don't have, like, rules on what you can say. What does the FDA do in the cases where there are marketing claims like like the word natural, for instance, where there is no standard definition. Well, that caused such a huge amount of litigation um, because a lot of products were calling themselves natural, but they had high fructose corn syrup or GMOs and things like that. 
And um, there was no definition, and so the courts were trying to figure out what to do. And finally, the FDA has agreed to define the term natural. Now, what's going to happen under the next administration is a completely different story. But they were, they did take comments um, to try to define that term. Okay, so that's in that's in um, progress. Yeah. Um, what are what kind of tactics? does industry take to fight food marketing restrictions and are they effective? Well, so they do, the food companies and marketers do have the constitution on its side. So the, in order to restrict food marketing, it's actually quite difficult. There's a a specific test, a legal test called the Central Hudson test, and it's not been uh, easy to pass. No case has actually, no government restriction has actually passed in the Supreme Court since 1995. And it's, um, it's just proving to be a more and more difficult test to pass. So it's, it's quite difficult to restrict food marketing. So because of that, the food industries engage in self-regulatory efforts, and then the government has tried to give them voluntary guidelines, and um, those have different outcomes to them. Has the has the um, FTC ever been able to um, provide any suggestions or guidance or, or mandates on this it, throughout its history? Yeah. So back in the 70s, the FTC did try to regulate food marketing to children. At the time, the concern was cavities um, from sugary products. Now we have obesity and chronic disease. <laughs> How far that, we've come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Including cavities. Yep. Um, so the FTC was worried about cavities and wanted to regulate food marketing to children. This was called KidVid during that time. And the industry fought back and actually appealed to Congress, which... Uh, actually withdrew the authority of the FTC to regulate food marketing to children under its unfair authority. So the FTC actually still to this day cannot regulate food marketing to children as unfair. It can regulate food marketing to children as deceptive, but there are other uh, barriers to its regulatory authority that makes it not want to do it. Um, But so they had a very strong pushback. Well, but what would be the problem? You mentioned um, voluntary guidelines coming out of the FTC. What's what's the problem with those? Yeah, so the FTC partnered with other agencies. They created an interagency working group to give voluntary guidelines, and there are great headlines. The GMA saying, we will not budge on this. We're not going to uh, give in to these guidelines. And they actually hired a First Amendment professor to argue that it violated the First Amendment, which if you read the, the law itself, it actually says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, but voluntary guidelines are clearly not a law. Right. Um, so it's a disingenuous argument, but that's how strongly they don't want any type of um, government, even voluntary guidelines, to get involved in their um, food marketing to children. They must yeah. think it's quite uh, influential and want to not have anything happen. When when we when advocates talk about restricting marketing, are there specific products, or does this is this like unhealthy products, or when um, people talk about it, is are we t- like in the context of this this conversation, especially, or um, are we talking about like all food products? There are there is a subset of group that believe in a commercial free childhood that no ch- 
children should see any marketing of any type, like even for toys or, you know, anything. I think for the most part, food advocacy advocates are talking about unhealthy food. Um, there is a debate whether you should use SpongeBob SquarePants to to market carrots, but for the most part, I think people would agree if SpongeBob can get kids to eat carrots, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Because that's where we are in the society. I mean, we have to be realistic also. But there are a bunch of unhealthy foods that are the most marketed to, to children. And the Rudd Center did one of the best studies on this, and they actually found that the most unhealthy cereals had the most claims on it, the things we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and they were the ones being marketed to, to children, while the healthiest cereals had the least amount of claims and they weren't marketed to children at all. And so this is what's concerning, that we have a childhood obesity epidemic, diabetes, chronic disease into adulthood, and we are marketing sugary beverages, sugary cereals, and other, you know, fast food and other unhealthy products to kids. And they it definitely Im- influences their desires. Right. I think you know, we had Marlene on last um, for uh, the first part of this series, and she did mention, I asked about, or uh, we asked about whether or not marketing claims are effective in in, um, in kind of promoting healthier products. And she said they are found to be very effective marketing tactics. Um, so it seems to me it would be a great thing if we can get, if we can use any tool at our disposal to get kids to eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, but maybe that's just, maybe that's just me. No, I think most people agree because, and we're also in a place where they're going to see marketing. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's I think it would be literally impossible to to do that. Um, so, so in talking about kind of marketing to kids specifically, are there any other sort of parameters um, around what companies can and can't say, or any sort of um, restrictions on the commercial speech uh, protection when it comes well, to kids? Yeah, there are a couple minor things, but they haven't proven to be so influential. But you can't market things that are illegal for children to buy. Okay, um, that I makes mean, sense. I, you know, but that you would think that would be more helpful. But when Massachusetts tried to restrict marketing of tobacco to kids, they the Supreme Court struck down the regulation saying that it was cutting off too much speech to adults. So, so in some ways, it didn't really help the problem. Yeah. Um, the other thing is when the FTC is analyzing ads that are directed at children, it does look at it from the viewpoint of a child, which is actually great, because we know that children are not really the ultimate purchasers of a lot of these products. Mm-hmm. So it, would, it could have been that the FTC said, well, it's really about the purchasers, but they do look at it from the perspective of the child, which does make them uh, bring cases where a kid would be deceived where an adult might not. Um, Okay. All right. So I want to actually take a really quick commercial break right now. Um, We're going to hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, I want to talk about um, in more detail about some specific programs and interventions that have proven to be effective in um, trying to curb the effects of marketing. Stay tuned. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. 
Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State grown and certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State grown and certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Jennifer Pomerantz, a professor at NYU and a recent panelist at the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policies Conference on food marketing. Um, okay, so shifting our focus a little bit, um, well, actually, no, actually not. I'm kind of obsessed with what companies can and can't stay, say still. Um, in thinking about this, I want to talk about San Francisco. So... Uh, we know that the city has been quite active uh, in the past two years in their efforts to curb consumption of sugary beverages. Um, in 2005, they passed two ordinances. Um, the first requires warning labels on certain advertisements for sugar-sweetened beverages um, to basically tell consumers about the the healthful harm, uh, harmful health effects of consuming these beverages. Um, and then they also authorized the um, Department of Health to impose penalties for noncompliance. And then the second, um, the second ordinance was to prohibit advertising of these beverages on city property um, and then also to require a warning label on these on city billboards and buses and, and the things like that. Um, all of that was a long-winded lead-in, Jennifer, to my question, which is how are these initiatives not in violation of the commercial speech protections? Oh, um, yeah, great, great question. Um, so the... Warnings are kind of what we were talking about from the very beginning. The disclosure requirements are actually the easiest to pass. So, like that's why the nutrition labeling mm-hmm. um, has not become a problem. But warnings are considered a disclosure requirement, and so we have the Surgeon General's warning is the penultimate example, and the, the courts have generally found that those are fine, and so the uh, warnings are also permitted under the FDA laws. So this is why the warnings are a very viable option. And um, there's actually currently uh, sodium warnings on the menus in New York City. So, you know, this kind of concept is, is starting to make its way around. The mm-hmm. ads on on city property, um, the government is allowed to reserve the speech on its own property for specific uses. uses. If so, if they draft the law appropriately, they can restrict the type of ads that are allowed on their own property. But what's so great about that is that schools are public schools and their government uh, property as well. So schools are the one place where you can really restrict marketing, and that's how it, it has another First Amendment test, which actually makes it the easiest thing to do. So that's a, a, a good way to get in. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So what about, you know, 
what are, I kind of want to go back to some of the tactics that industry can use to fight food marketing. So if a company sees something like this at the city level um, coming down the pike, what what would you do if you're an industry? Like, what are some of the kind of actions that they use to attempt to block these kinds of policies or, or initiatives? So there are two main ones. The first is litigation, and that's we are seeing all over the country. When anytime there's some progressive food policy issue, the industry sues, and they usually argue one, two two things, and among others, one is that it violates the First Amendment, and mm-hmm. then the second that it's preempted by a federal law. And the topic of preemption is also the second thing that they will try to do. Preemption is when a higher level of government withdraws the authority of a lower level of government to act. And actually, for those of you who cared about the original news, this is what we have to fear coming up in the next administration under the next government, because what's happening now throughout public health and and very much in food policy is that the higher levels of government, so the states are preempting the local jurisdictions from being able to pass pro-public health laws. And so in some cases, the federal government has preempted states from doing things, and this is why they use it as litigation. They sue in litigation saying the federal government preempted these state and local laws. But if they lose or and as in another method, they actually try to get preemptive laws passed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they've been quite successful in a couple of places, and the laws make it so that local jurisdictions can't pass any of the innovative laws you mentioned, and then, of course, others, too. What are some examples, recent examples, that we can point to? Oh, so actually, I'd say that the um, recent example it was in Kansas. It was a law that was passed here in, two, in this year, 2016, and it preempts the ability of all um, local jurisdictions to regulate food service establishments, whether they're for for free, like so cafeterias that are free, or or for or retail establishments as well. But it preempts the local jurisdictions from doing three, four incredible things. One, providing information, so that's like a menu labeling law. Um, they preempt the ability to give consumer, to regulate consumer incentives, which the concern there is that sometimes you try to incentivize people to buy fruits and vegetables by giving them discounts, so that would be Like preemptive. at the farmer's market? Or? Yeah, like, and for people on SNAP, this, these kind of things would be preempted. Um, the, I think their goal was to try to avoid um, those laws that were started um, about, that were regulating the Happy Meal toys. Yeah. But it's such so broadly written that it could actually preempt the ability to give, like, discounted fruits and vegetables, yeah. too. And then they also preempt any kind of regulations on the sale of products that are illegal. So you couldn't, so a local jurisdiction couldn't say that um, under 18 can't buy sugary beverages now in Kansas. And then the fourth one, which is the most distressing, is that it won't allow local jurisdictions to address food-based health disparities. And health disparities is the probably one of the number one public health issue right now. The, the the difference between socioeconomic status, the health, and mm-hmm. the different issues and access to food and all these things, it's such a wide net that it's very um, concerning that if this type of law starts to spread around the country. And we have seen others like it, but this was the most recent. Woof. Um, okay, so a lot of effective tools. <laughs> in their tool best. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, given our kind of 
impending political environment, which you talked a little bit about, um, where we can expect federal regulation to be at best at a standstill. Um, what are it, it seems like we're going to have to rely on other entities uh, to move the needle on these efforts. So are there any kind of bright spots <laughs> um, that, like, of policies and programs um, that can be put into place beyond regulation um, that ho- hopefully wouldn't be sort of preempted by industry? Well, so in states that are there, there's a, it's called a trifecta when the governor and the both houses of the legislature are the same party. Mm-hmm. There are a few Democratic trifectas. California is one, um, and so and there there are a few more. So those are places where it, was, it will not be likely that there would be preemption. So those places can really. Do, do great things. Unfortunately, if you look at a map of the trifectas, m- most of the country is under a Republican trifecta right now, and so is our federal government. So, I mean, it's hard to be positive except that I, we really need to engage in grassroots movement building and advocacy and also tell our Democratic legislators that we still care about these issues. Not Don't let them move to let their yeah. needle go to the right because the country voted the way it did. Well, even the majority didn't, but right. pretend. <laughs> yeah. um, but so we need to, like, keep this voice heard. And I yeah. and we do, the bright spot is the potential to get win back the House or Senate in two years and, you know, elect people that have a more progressive public health viewpoint than the ones that are in office. And that prioritize it. Because yeah. I think a lot of times it kind of gets lost in the in the many competing priorities that electeds have. Yes. Um, okay. So not much hope coming out of government for at least the next two years. Um, but you know, I am I am very curious in kind of industry's role um, in kind of in self regulating a little bit. So um, it's it's a very interesting time because. Companies and corporations are incentivized by the largest consumer base right now, which is, of course, millennials, to do well by doing good, right? But do do things like increasing transparency and um, and engaging in more initiatives that are seen as socially responsible. Um, so, is there, in your opinion, a role for industry to play in restricting certain marketing efforts or? Given the likely repercussions that any kind of curbing of marketing efforts would have on a business's bottom line, do you think there's like no middle ground on this one? No, I'm not one of the no middle ground people. I think that, and I do think we have to be realistic. And industry is a big, if not the biggest player in in this world, you yeah. know, in in the United States. So, we, and I thought the news about Monsanto was really exciting. Yeah. And and you know, I've heard a couple of news stories about Walmart doing mm-hmm. what you know we in the food policy public health world would think is they're doing the right thing. And so, right. and. Pepsi, and there are companies that do things that align with our interests as well. And so that, and what I do love are the millennials really do use their power of purchase Mm -hmm. to make statements. And so companies that are doing right do, are going to appeal to that huge purchasing block. Right. And, um, and so I do think that there is a definite role for industry, and there are big differences among the companies. I mean, Pepsi and Coke are very different companies, and so it's yeah. important 
to keep that in mind when you're making purchase decisions, but also that the, you can expect some better things to come from companies. And they're, it's not only marketing, but they're, they're purchasing and they're providing, you know, when McDonald's, who is often hated, you know, mm-hmm. now they're considered, I think, the largest purchaser of apples, you know, yeah. these are not bad things. And it's important to keep in mind that it's not really up or white. versus them. Yeah. Well, you know, it is sometimes, but not always. Right. No, I think that's a that's a very important point, and I think that point a lot of times gets lost among food advocates, which is doesn't really get the us, the collective us, um, very far. Um, what I'm curious, what what is Pepsi doing? You said they're like Pepsi and Coke are very different companies. Is well, there an example you know, of some of the work they're doing? Yeah. Well, Pepsi actually purchased um, a lot of whole food companies. So they own Quaker, they own Sabra Hummus, and there's a huge list of food companies that they own that are, you might be surprised when you read the list, but it's whole foods. Yeah. And that's to me a progressive position. Yeah. Coca-Cola, to my knowledge, does not own companies like this. They have mostly just sugary beverages and different types of sugary beverage companies or sweet beverage, not necessarily sugar. But they haven't been diversifying to the same extent. So to me, that's a big statement about Pepsi. Right. Yeah. Um, So what would what would like a middle ground on on a, a marketing a marketing look like? Like where where can industry and, and government meet in the middle? If, yeah, if there so are examples of this, the, you know, I'm, I think Marlene probably talked about the CFBAI and the self regulatory pledges, and some of them are weaker than others in yeah. terms of the, the food that they allow. But there's a bigger problem is that it allows branding and it doesn't apply in the supermarket. So even if a kid saw one Lunchable on TV, when they get to the store or, and there's 26 versions and only one of them is healthy and the rest are not, it doesn't matter what the CFBAI said. So if they really wanted to do the right thing, they would come up with a way to, on their own packaging, make it indicate the healthier version. So make it easier for parents to be making those purchases if they're interested and think broader about what's healthy or not and how they use their branding efforts. And so there are ways that they can move. But I would say that in the supermarket is, is a very obvious one. Okay. All right. And then, and then lastly, um, for those concerned parents and advocates listening in, what are some ways that you recommend consumers um, getting involved with on an on a individual level? I mean, I think the pr- power of purchase is quite strong. And, you know, it, also we are engaged in a time where we need to be engaging in movement building. And, you know, the grassroots mef- efforts are going to be the pivotal ones now because, as you said, the government's kind of not where it's at right now. <laughs> so yeah. we need to join together, find like-minded people, you know, even when it starts with a blog, but, you know, g- and get together and support the companies that are doing better and not support the companies that aren't so and we we do have that power especially the millennials um mm-hmm. you know it's because they are the biggest group and they have the mo- most voting power as well yeah. so i would say my last thing would be to say please vote yeah <laughs> yes that seems like an obvious one but you know what we have to keep saying it because mm-hmm. people continue to not do it <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, um, I am going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining this. It was um, such an illuminating conversation, and I really appreciate you um, coming on to talk about it with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. All right, finishing strong. <laughs> that, was, that was quite the sound effect. <laughs> Still going. <laughs> Um, what a great lead-in for our final segment on today's episode, um, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food company. Today, I am very pleased to introduce Doug Rausch, founder and president of The Daily Table, a nonprofit food retail store based in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Doug, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Um, okay, so can you just start by giving us an overview of um, the mission, Daily Table's mission, and what specifically you guys are working on to improve the food system? Yeah, well, Daily Table exists to bring affordable nutrition to uh, the working poor, to food insecure. And uh, one of the challenges we face in America is that we're the richest nation in the history of the world in food production, mm-hmm. yet we still have somewhere between 42 and 48 million Americans that are, quote, hungry, secure. Um, and, and most of those, unfortunately, are getting plenty, if not too many calories, but not near enough nutrients. And as a result, we have obesity as the face of hunger in America for many of these uh, 42 to 48 million Americans. So Daily Table exists as a uh, retail solution, nonprofit retail solution, saying let's go out and uh, collect the wholesome, excess nutritional food as much as we can, along with special buys that we make and using our contacts in the food industry to uh, purchase product, and then come down into a retail setting and offer uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, clean dairy and protein, in, a, in an environment where it is economically then agnostic to go out and get food that is really good, nutritionally sound, um, and you don't pay any more for it, and matter, in fact, you often pay less than you would for foods that are much less uh, nutritionally uh, uh, balanced. So Daily Table is, you know, one of the big learnings besides the fact that hunger in America isn't just a shortage of calories, it's a shortage of nutrients. Mm-hmm. One of my other big learnings was to find out that, you know, in America, that as you move down the economic rung, you don't have more time, you have less time. You're often working two or three jobs. You're yeah. taking You're single head of household sometimes. And so in focus groups in the inner city, one of the things they told us was, listen, don't just give us a bunch of food to go home and cook because, frankly, we're tired. We don't have time. Um, You know, we're going to stop somewhere at fast food or bodega and just get some snacks or fast food to eat. If you really want to help us, put in a kitchen and give us grab-and-go ready-to-eat meals that we can take home in three or five minutes, be cooked up, and they'll be healthy, nutritious, tasty uh, for our kids. And so that's what we do. Um, okay, so how does this actually work? Like I'm thinking a kind of a normal or like a, a traditional uh, food retail environment like grocery stores, they operate at notoriously razor-thin margins. So how are you doing this work as a nonprofit and also with the ability to offer products at an affordable price point? Well, I think that uh, there's two ways. One, as a nonprofit, we go out to manufacturers, to retailers, to growers, mm-hmm. uh, to the produce markets, and we we collect food as a donation. Okay. So, in essence, it's free. Mm-hmm. 
um, other than our truck and our driver and this sort of stuff. Um, we also then have very special buys where we'll buy product that is shorter in code. We don't sell anything past its code date. Okay. Not because food past its code date is not healthy, but not one in a hundred Americans understands that, you know, that the quote expiration date doesn't mean anything. isn't when food expires. Yeah, yeah. And so the. I first started with that model thinking that's what I was going to do, and after neighborhood after neighborhood meeting and town halls, I realized, oh, my gosh, I can't swim up Niagara Falls by myself. Um, (laughs) No one understands this. And one of the key other huge learnings for me was that among this population, a large percentage is hungrier to keep their dignity than they are even their health, that they just won't use food banks, soup kitchens, food pantries, et cetera, for reasons of pride or that they're ashamed to go and shop. So they basically told us, create a store that looks good, mm-hmm. that everyone can shop in, um, where I can go and get food that I can afford. And that gives them, because it's retail, because they have the power of the purse, they feel that they have by nature some agency in it. So it gives them a sense of dignity. So one of the ways we make it work is by, one, going out and collecting food. Mm-hmm. Two, um, by then, uh, uh, much of what we compete with is fast food, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a third to 40% of what we sell are meals we cook up in our kitchen. And we purposely design this so that there's a great big window when you walk in the store. You look right into the kitchen. You watch the product being made. You look at people that we hire from the community. You watch people making this fresh. So you have some connection with the food. You don't have this mystery food. Where did this entree come from that's so cheap? Yeah. So we'll cook up, you know, a 14 or 16-ounce, you know, it'll have chicken or fish or, or beef or vegetarian, vegan, whatever it is. And we'll sell it from you know, $1.99 to $3.99 or so, depending upon if it's, you know, um, uh, a primal cut of meat or if it's it's whatever. We'll give eight, you know, eight ounces of a good uh, protein along with a, a vegetable and brown rice or or some other nutrition. Everything in our store meets nutritional guidelines that were set voluntarily by a, a group we put together from Harvard School of Public Health, Children's Hospital, Boston Medical Center, Boston Public Health Commission, and they basically said, here's how much sugar, here's how much sodium, right. here's how much fiber should be in product in order to have a healthy outcome. And we have voluntarily met or exceeded those uh, since we've op- opened. We've been open 18 months. We have over 9,000 members. We do about 125,000 servings a week. Wow. And, um, you know, we do not lead with healthy and nutritious because one of the things we learn in the community is let us figure that out for ourselves. If you lead with that, it's going to turn us off. Right. It's sound like what do we have to give up for that? Right. <laughs> to lead with, hey, it's it's delicious, it's fresh, it's convenient. And it's oh, affordable. and by the way, amazingly affordable. Yeah. And then you can kind of back into the, you know, tell us that it's going to make us feel good. So we talk about food that's going to move you forward, not hold you back. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to start this company? Like, where'd you get the idea? Yeah, well, I, I spent a long time in the grocery industry. I was uh, 31 years with Trader Joe's. Wow. I uh, uh, was president uh, there. Uh, there was two presidents, East and West, uh, and I, I brought Trader Joe's to the East here 20 years ago. Thought I'd only be here a few years and then head back, but 
Here I still am, living in Boston. <laughs> um, I came to love the East, and I uh, have two kids that live in New York City uh, that uh, live in Brooklyn. And so, mm-hmm. Woohoo, you know, that's where we are right now. <laughs> so that I didn't want to, I didn't want to head back east, yeah. and, uh, back west. So anyway, uh, uh, I then became national president, and you know, I quote graduated from Trader Joe's after my ceaseless travel and 31 years there. Uh, in 2008, went and did a uh, fellowship at Harvard for two years in an advanced leadership initiative where Daily Table was hatched as an idea about what are we going to do about this problem in America. And now let's face it, we have a pretty significant problem. This is going to be a health care tsunami that all of us are going to feel. You know, because sometimes when you hear about, hey, there's one in six or, or one in eight people in America are hungry or food insecure. It's hard to some to, degree, if you're not yeah. careful, you go, ah, well, the poor have always been with us. Or, yeah. oh, well, gosh, that really is a tragedy. You know, frankly, what's that got to do with me? Yeah. Well, it's got everything to do with you. We're all going to pay for this, regardless mm-hmm. of the health care system, whatever, whether it's some form of the Affordable Care Act or it's just regular private insurance, it all gets subsidized out. Plus, this is a trillion-dollar problem for America a year. And we all pay for that in the cost of society, the cost of the fact that 17 million kids aren't getting the nutrition they need to really develop properly, et cetera, et cetera. So it really is, it really is a challenge. And this came out of... You know, came out of a fellowship at Harvard where what I loved about this fellowship was you had to stand at the end and let your cohort and, and faculty you'd worked with know what are you going to do about a social challenge? Not what you learn, not, what's, not what should someone else do. Yeah. What are you, you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So it was out of that, there was a challenge and a call to me like, well, what can I do about this? And I tried to put the knowledge I had from my whole career about food and food systems and serving customers uh, into use. And as I say, you know, if you're a hammer, all the world's a nail. So maybe it's not a huge surprise that I migrated towards retail. Yeah. Um, Have you, I mean, it seems like you guys work really hard to kind of prevent any sort of stigma that um, could be associated with shopping um, at at a place with um, convenient and super affordable prices. I'm wondering if, if this has been an issue for you guys. Um, at you know, all. it hasn't been a single issue. And if you if you go on our Facebook page, for instance, you'll see that we've got like 4.9 out of 5 stars. And so, and the reason isn't that because from the moment we opened, uh, you could watch product be freshly prepared. Uh-huh. So when it comes out, we're taking product we've recovered from uh, Boston area gleaners or the produce market or something, along with, with other product we've had donated. And we'll make incredible soups and entrees and salads and smoothies and, and these things. But you'll watch them be being fresh. And when they come out with a code date on them, it'll be a code date of five or seven days from now. It'll be like any other fresh product in, right. a, in an upscale market. Second is we don't carry anything past its code date. Mm-hmm. So when we get product, we often get shorter code product from someone donated, say from um, Cedar Mediterranean, which is for almost a year and a half now given us, you know, excess uh, hummus or tabbouleh or things like this. To them, when it's less than 30 days, they can't ship it to a grocer. Oh, wow. Because a grocer needs to move it through their system and have it on the store shelf, et cetera. 30 days to us is an eternity. And so we're able to offer this stuff at a phenomenal price, have people that otherwise would never be able to afford yeah. this sort of protein and clean food, whole, whole grains and, and, and leafy vegetables and kale and, 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 and lettuce and fruits and vegetables, get that priced so that they can come in, walk out with a couple of bags of groceries and go, oh, my God, I spent less for this than I would for half a bag of groceries somewhere else. And... We, uh, we have about 9,000 members, I mentioned, that 85% of them come from what are called Section 330 uh, areas, which are means that they're economically challenged, that the federal government will give additional federal funding to health care centers and providers. 
So um, we allow anyone to shop there, kind of like mm-hmm. Goodwill stores. You can yep. go; anyone can welcome to come in and buy clothing. But based on where we're located, our prime customer is someone who really appreciates uh, what right. we're offering them, and many times is for the first time trying something. And I've had people tell me the first time they ever tried a BlackBerry. Wow. And that's Dorchester. Is that is that a fairly yeah, high Yeah, Dorchester, which is part of Boston. It's part of the inner city in Boston. Um, great. Okay. So any, um, any challenges that you've come across since you've started in, in terms of operations in this type oh, of Oh, my model? gosh. <laughs> of course. I mean, just, first of all, just running retail is a challenge. It's tough. It's, if it was simple, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Uh, but when you're trying to tackle a problem like hunger or trying to deal with an issue like all this wasted food we have in America, definitionally, it's a big problem. If it weren't, someone would have solved it long before I ever came along. <laughs> So, you know, first of all, every day you get product, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know how much you're going to get. You don't know where you're going to get it. So our executive chef and our our chefs have a top chef challenge basically every day. Here comes in 10 cases of broccoli. What are we going to do with that? You know, here comes, you know, some of the largest kohlrabi we've ever seen. Oh, my God, what do you do with kohlrabi? You know, uh, so there's that challenge. Second is how do you then educate and how do you then, you know, either through demos, through by sampling, or by a conversation piece, et cetera, how do you let your customer know, you know, what this is and how to use it? Then third is, of course, the fact that, that um, we don't have the type of funding that the average market would use for marketing. You know, so we yeah. count on word of mouth. We count on churches and neighborhood associations letting their community know that, hey, if you really want to get good food at a phenomenal price, go down to Daily Table. So, you know, our business is growing, it's building, it's month by month getting stronger and stronger and more and more members, but it's been a slow organic growth. We've had to, as they say, you know, earn it one customer at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, okay, so I actually have to wrap up in, in two minutes, although I could keep on talking to you for a very long time because I think this is such a fascinating model. Um, I'm assuming you guys accept SNAP uh, benefits? Well, we, we, we love SNAP. We yeah. encourage it. And what about with the prepared foods, though? I mean, have you thought about applying for We, we only sell them cold. And if they're, sold, if they're sold chilled, they are SNAP eligible. Huh. I, if you sell them warm, yeah. like a rotisserie chicken, we sell lots of rotisserie chicken, but we sell it cold. That's SNAP eligible. If you sell it hot, it's not. It's a bizarre twist, and it's one of the ways SNAP is totally irrational and makes no sense. I actually did not know that. <laughs> so you learn something new every day. I thought it was all prepared foods. Um, nope. Wow. Okay. Well, that is, um, that is great to hear. Um, all right. Final question. Any plans to scale? When, when can we yeah, see absolutely. you in, in our neck fact, of the woods? I, I hope, uh, a matter of fact, I have a scheduled meeting next week with uh, uh, the mayor's office down in New York for a, a second round of serious conversation about how we bring Daily Table down to New York. Oh, well, I would love to see that. Um, that is really good news. So I wish you the best of luck with that, and I hope to actually see you in our city sometime soon. I would enjoy that. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Doug. You bet. A real pleasure. Thank you. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to have to wrap it up today. Um, one quick note before I do. If any of you listeners are in the New York City area, I will be moderating a panel um, up at Teachers College this Friday uh, from 9 to 12. Um, it will be 
hosted by the New York City Nutrition Education Network, and we are going to be talking about the intersection of food waste and nutrition education. Um, so uh, that location is 525 West 120th Street in Manhattan, and uh, check out our Twitter feed for more information, and we hope to see you there. Um, okay, so I want to thank both of our fabulous guests today, Jennifer Pomerantz and Doug Rausch, uh, for coming on the show. Thank you to our sponsors, as usual, for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from the one and only Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, David Tedashore, who really crushed it on the sound effects today. <laughs> Right to the end. Oh, thank you. Thank you, you everybody. You are amazing. <laughs> um, also, all of our episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. There's nothing to say.